0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a blue and white batik shirt and I'm sitting in front of a big shelf full of books. And my pronouns are he, him. Today we've got with us a human rights lawyer and new narrative contributor, Lim Weijet, who is going to talk to us about the ongoing crisis in Malaysia. But before we get to that, this podcast is brought to you by New Narrative, a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia, and we are entirely member supported. So if you enjoy this podcast, please do join us at, as a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And now, Subash. stay where you are. We've come where Where you think that you're gonna go? This is utopia. Please stay where you are. Okay, so joining us today is Lim Weijet, human rights lawyer and new narrative contributor. But before we get to him, as always, my friend, my co-host, Sean Francis Han. How are you today, Sean?
1: Yeah, I'm doing good. Really, really excited to get into this uh, intervention here about an issue that's a massive, massive humanitarian crisis and which I think many Singaporeans are unaware of, right? But before we get onto all of that interesting stuff, hi, my name is Sean Francis. I'm wearing a gray T-shirt. Uh, sitting in front of a grey cupboard, and my pronouns are he, him. So, uh, Wei what are your pronouns, what are you wearing, and who are you? Tell us more about yourself. Right. Um, hi, everyone. Um,
2: my name is Wei I'm wearing a black shirt. Um, I'm sitting in front of a white wall at my house. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I am a human rights lawyer, um, and I'm also one of the co-founders of the Malaysian United Democratic Alliance, which is one of the very minor political parties in Malaysia, uh, which has not been registered yet, fortunately. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've been following the developments politically in Malaysia for some
1: time. I'm keen to discuss uh, in the next few hours. Okay, so let's, let's just jump right into it, all right? What, what exactly is happening in Malaysia right now? All right, in a nutshell, there appears to be a
2: quadruple crisis of sorts in Malaysia. Okay. Uh, number one. <laughs> let me unpack this. Number one. Yeah. It is a health crisis, uh, obviously, it's similar mm-hmm. to many, uh, many countries across the globe. Number two, there is an economic crisis uh, pursuant to the health crisis. People are losing jobs. Um, the economy is being shut down because of the lockdown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Number three. There appears also to be a democratic crisis where organs of government, which are supposed to provide checks and balances upon the executive, such as parliament, uh, is not functioning. And number four, there's a political crisis. Um, There is a very, very uh, huge instability in the ruling coalition and also politics in general because of the hopping of politicians from one coalition to the other. But yeah, I can, discuss it then for the detail later on. But that briefly encapsulates what's going
1: on in Malaysia. Okay. Can you tell us the extent uh, of the crisis right now? How is it manifesting? What exactly is going on? Are we seeing protests? Are we seeing strikes? What, what's going on? Right. I think
2: in general, people are very fed up with how the government is being incompetent in handling the crisis thus far. We saw one million cases um, uh, this past few days being hit in Malaysia. We see 200 plus deaths a day because of the pandemic. We see an ailing economy that is not receiving sufficient assistance from the government. Uh, We are seeing children lagging behind in education because of, you know, flip-flopping education policies, no um, IT devices given to rural children to access education. So in general, people were willing to give a chance at the very beginning when this government um, took power very unceremoniously, I might say, back in back last March. But as time passes by, uh, we see failures at every juncture and people are just fed up. And I can tell you that if but for the pandemic, people will be on the streets by the millions demanding this government to resign. But obviously, you know we don't want to burden the frontliners and everything. So, you know, the protest comes in many forms. On social media, people are hanging out black flags um, to symbolize the government's failures. People are having convoys um, um, with black flags to, you know, comply with SOPs to prevent the virus from spreading, but also to make a point that we we cannot stand this any longer. And on 31st July, I made mean, to understand that, that there will be actually be a physical protest in um, Dataran Merdeka, the independent square, um, where you know, several NGOs have decided that enough is enough. We have to show this government that they have to back up or they have to resign. And, and that, that is the manifestation of all the, the kind of discontent that people are having now at this juncture. Mm.
0: Uh, you mentioned the black flags, but that was a response to the white flags, right? Can you tell us more about this white flag crisis?
2: Right. So the white flag, cri- the white flag movement is, I think, sort of ground up by, um, as a ground up initiative by several NGOs to you know, allow people who could not have food or need basic assistance like you know, baby diapers at home to plant a white flag in front of the houses, so that you know those who are in power or those who are capable and, and are able to can go to their houses directly to help them, um, and the black flag movement it, it's not in response per se but but it's it's probably driven by the same NGOs and people, but it's another angle to show that you know the white flags are happening because of the government 's failure and therefore you know, the black flag symbolizes the government's failure and discontent. So, so uh, that, that in essence is a relationship.
0: Right. Mm. So the white flags was basically people starving in their homes and unable to access basic necessity, putting out a white flag, screaming for help. How, how did it, How did it get to this? I mean, Malaysia is not a poor country, you know. And how did you end up in a state where people actually have no jobs, no money, no food, and are trapped in their homes, holding out flags, begging for help.
1: Yeah, I think
2: for many decades we we are led to believe that Malaysia is relatively abundant and rich in resources, and for to some extent we are. But I think that we COVID sort of exposed the rot that is already simmering underneath Malaysia when it comes to you know, our economy being dominated by GLCs, which means there is a relatively uncompetitive environment and domestically. Uh, we are seeing education levels um, being deteriorating for many decades now, which you know, prevent investors from coming to Malaysia and, and choosing other countries within the region. You know all, sorts, all of this has manifested to, to today. It, it, to to, to last year, 2020, uh, where the economy was forced to close. Um, Factories were not allowed to operate. Small, medium enterprises are not allowed to operate. And so people are literally um, either retrenched or they are forced to close their businesses and to sell off their businesses. And there really is no alternative besides the gig economy, maybe, um, to to Grab or Food Panda for food delivery that seems to be the only industry that is, you know, moving. But mm-hmm. the rest of the economy is, is just failing and and because of the nuns, because of the rising cases, our economy has never been fully open and never been allowed to be fully open for what, since June, July last year. So it's been a year where you know, it, the the economy is open and shut, and open and shut. So this kind of instability and uncertainty has really thrown a lot of businesses uh, off the rails, and um, many people just can't find food on the table anymore. And and uh, in terms of food delivery and and assistance, the government is either not spending enough the money or enough of money because they are more concerned about fiscal ratings by you know. Uh, by global, global rating agencies or because of the incompetency in which they channel delivery whereby, you know, sometimes they want it to be channeled to specific uh, politicians or specific, you know, district officers so that to give an impression that government politicians are the ones that are helping instead of, you know, disseminating it to opposition MPs who probably know their area much better and are able to disseminate it at a much quicker pace. So, you know, all of this combined... Has resulted in people literally surrendering and crying for help and raising a white flag, and that is very unfortunate. I don't think they've ever seen that, even in times where the emergency happened, or or, or the, during the communist emergency insurgency even. Um, mm. So I was talking to many, you know, many of my senior lawyers and friends who have been through, you know, you know, independence, you know, the Japanese occupation, and they've probably never seen this kind of uh, this level of, you know, desperation among people. So mm. that's where we are
1: today. Okay, so I want to just jump off of PJ's question here, right? Uh, I think it is clear that the crisis um, has really exploded out of uh, a, a, a whole variety of, of, of sources and problems, right? And I want to sort of begin unpacking those problems, right? Uh, and as you said, this is a quadruple crisis, and you know, expectedly, there will be quadruple the amount of uh, uh, problems that were lying in the wait, ready to explode here. But maybe if we can take it one step at a time, we unpack this bit first, right? Where do the democratic and political problems come from, right? I think it's not too far off in recent memory that there were protests. Mahathir came in and and made some kind of appearance. So how exactly did it evolve into this? I remember Mahathir sort of being a figure for democracy or or at least a symbol of new hope. How did it all go so wrong?
2: Right. Um, To really understand what is happening today, a little bit of context is required. So, Barisan National was the ruling coalition since independence for Malaysia uh, for six decades plus, and they have never been dethroned until 2018. Um, And in 2018, a very historic um, general election happened, whereby, as you said, uh, Tun Mahathir, the fourth prime minister of Malaysia, uh, literally came out of retirement to join forces with his arch nemesis Anwar Ibrahim, who we all know as a very fiery and charismatic opposition leader for for decades already, to unseat Najib Razak, who was implicated in the worldwide one ndb scandal. I think that I think many people are aware of that. Uh, it is on that goal alone that Mahathir was willing to join forces with, you know, his political enemies in the past to. Um, defeat Barisan National, and he did so through the Pakatan Harapan Coalition, the Coalition of Hope. And in 2018, uh, they won power. Um, However, within Pakatan Harapan, uh, all doesn't seem too well because um, then the issue primarily is within uh, ANWAR's party, the Parti Keadilan Rakyat, where there are Factions within Anwar's party who are at loggerheads with Anwar and um, don't seem to think that they have a future if Anwar takes over from Mahadev as Prime Minister. So the plan was that Mahadev would be Prime Minister for two years and he would hand over the reins to Anwar Ibrahim. So this faction, including Asmin Ali, uh, the current International Trade and Industry Minister, wanted a way out. Um, and their way out was to um, join forces with the enemy, so to speak, which included Amno, who was dethroned by Pakhtan Harapan, uh, past the Islamist Party and GPS, the Sarawak-based party. And so in March 2020, uh, a very, very unfortunate event happened called the Sheraton Move whereby um, Azmin Ali's faction, Amno uh, Pass, and GPS uh, gathered at the Sheraton Hotel in, in KL. Uh, and that marked the downfall of the Pakatan Harapan because with Azmin Ali's faction departing away from Pakatan Harapan, um, Pakatan Harapan no longer had a majority in parliament. Uh, and uh, Ton Mahade for some reason decided to to resign. Um, He said that, you know, it's clear that he did not have any majority anymore, and he resigned. Um, And uh, the king and the monarch was forced to elect a new prime minister that his majesty thinks would command the majority of parliament support. And uh, Muhyiddin Yassin, who was from um, Mahathir's party, Bersatu, uh, was appointed as Prime Minister. And I should mention that um, even within Mah- Mahade's party, Bersatu, they were also uh, uncomfortable with Anwar taking over, and uh, they, they also joined forces with Azmin's faction, and, and that's where we are today. So the Purikata national government was born, led by Muhyiddin Yassin. So, but this coalition is obviously very unstable because even until today, we don't really know whether they actually have a majority in parliament. Because what happened in March 2020 was that no one, no single MP commanded a clear majority in parliament. The king had to go through several rounds of interviews. Um, he eventually uh, appointed uh, Muhyiddin Yassin. But his, his majority has never really been tested because he did not call parliament for the longest time so there was no avenue to test uh, whether he has a majority in parliament and he implemented the emergency and the emergency basically paralyzed parliament and parliament couldn't couldn't convene so it's been what one year plus since uh, the Malaysian parliament has convened and even as it had started to convene two three days back uh, or rather this monday uh, there is no voting of any um, uh, voting of sorts. So, so, Muhyiddin's majority has, again, not really been tested in parliament. And that's where we are today. So, we are in this situation where Muhyiddin Yassin's government, the Berekata National Government, is fearful that it may fall any day. And uh, that's where we are today. And the focus of this government in my view, has not really been to tackle the crisis at hand, but to maintain power. And the fear of losing power is, this, is distracting them greatly from their ministerial duties. And mm-hmm. that manifested and resulted in the health, economic, and democratic crisis that we have today. So the political crisis is really the mother and the cause of all the other crises in Malaysia. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so if I can... Uh, summarize you've got an incompetent government which is terrified of losing power doesn't know if it has a majority in parliament and so doesn't pass bills uh, which tried to which called and declared an emergency to hold on to power and then this past Monday when it looked like there was going to be a vote on that suddenly said there was no emergency anymore which Whether that's even legal, no one knows. And then in the meantime, you've got the Sultan now asserting uh, a, a greater role, trying to act as some sort of democratic balance. And because, but essentially it's an incompetent government which can't pass legislation, but also is terrible at running the country, but no one can unseat them. And also if they're unseated, no one knows what comes after. And so that, uh, that's basically
2: where your country is. Yes, in a nutshell, yes. That's, that's uh, the chaotic description of my country, yes. And uh, it, you're right in the sense that um, what happens, even if we didn't, let's say, resigns tomorrow or is unseated, there's no MP who can clearly command the majority of parliament to become prime minister. But at mm-hmm. least today, uh, unless... ABNO decides to join forces with ANUA, uh, which seems very unlikely at the moment. Mm-hmm. So the only way out is really to, you know, possibly, you know, allow this government to just do what it's doing and hopefully the pandemic comes under control and a general election happens to allow Malaysians to choose a new government again. Um, but you know, that to me is unacceptable because as we, as we are now today, the government is failing and I think that there's a desperate need to remove them and to put in, put in place a unity government or any kind of other solutions in place, but nothing but this government. I think Malaysians are fed up and, and just want to move on from this, this sheer and I, I would say criminally incompetent government thus far.
0: So just to clarify, if Mahathir had handed over to Anwar on schedule, um, I, I, I don't know whether he planned to, but even if he had, uh, that other faction in Vasatu, in, in, in PH, uh, with Asmin Ali and others, would have walked out and taken the government down with them. So Anwar is basically also a nonstar because he's so hated slash feared by. Uh, you know, a segment of the of the politician. So he also cannot, and could not have commanded the support of a majority of parliament, even if uh, even if Mahathir just handed over to him on schedule.
2: Right. Well, it remains to be. I mean, I, I'm not sh- very sure if Azmin Ali and Bersatu would walk out if Mahathir handed power to Anwar. I mean, the 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 situation would have been a little bit different by then. Um, but but yeah it, it could possibly also be the case that if Anwar took over in um in 2 years time the same thing might have eventually happened anyway in 2020 <laughs> it, it might have happened anyway so um that's unfortunately where where we are and uh
1: yeah can I, can I, so I think you've done a wonderful job explaining um, how this political crisis, you know, really finds its roots um, with all the political turmoil that's been happening over the past few years. Um, but can I just ask you, so the third crisis that you've mentioned is the democratic crisis, right? Um, how did it get that way? What happened to the checks and balances? What happened to the arms of power that was supposed to keep a hold on everything breaking down? Uh, yeah, what happened to those things?
2: Right. Um, Because this government is so fearful of losing power, like I mentioned earlier, they have shut down parliament uh, for the longest of time. And parliament is, as you know, is so important to keep the executive on its toes to point out the flaws in the system. And indeed, in the past two days, we have seen very brilliant performances by opposition MPs pointing out the flaws and the things that the government could improve upon in combating COVID. And I think that the entire opportunity to work together, you know, government and opposition in tandem in this national crisis was, was not happening. And, and the kind of discourse and debate was not taking place. The government was, was on a single track and a single mind. They think that they know best how to handle this pandemic without opposition input at all and that's where we are today. If only they had allowed room for some kind of bipartisan um, collaboration or even to just listen to MPs from across the aisle on how to do things better, we might not be where we are today. Mm. And this, this freezing of parliament got so bad to the extent that, as, as Dr. Tam mentioned, the royalty in the monarch had to step in to remind the executive to convene parliament as soon as possible. I, I mean, in what world does that, does that, I would never imagine that happening. The monarch, who you know, uh, is not supposed to you know, traverse into the political realm, so to speak, uh, was so fed up that they had to you know, come up with statements uh, to, to sort of con- condemn the government of the day to, for, because they have been shutting down parliament. I mean, that that goes, that shows the level in which this government is just so paranoid uh, to to avoid any kind of scrutiny or or accountability. And it's not only Parliament, you you see the um, charges made against opposition MPs, which are baseless. You see investigations by police over not only opposition MPs, but, you know, any kind of dissent, you know, including from the Black Flag Movement, um, including for you know recently there were doctors who are contract doctors who are on strike because um, the government is not providing them, them uh, security in terms of their career. Even they are being called out by the police. you know these are frontliners risking their lives every day to help people with need and and you are calling them to the police station interrogating them as if they are criminals. I mean, the, the entire state machinery is just clamping down on all forms of dissent against the government of the day. And that is just really unfortunate. The only say, silver lining, I would say, is the judiciary, which which is now currently be, uh, led by a chief justice, whom I think is very fair. And the judiciary seems to be the only organ of state that is providing some kind of effective check and balance against the executive. But beyond that, you know, the attorney general's chambers, the police force, the immigration authorities, they're all just cl- coming, coming down, clamping down hard. And I'm afraid we are going back to the Barsan national days where, you know, freedom and human rights is, is just on the decline. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the last major source uh, of this crisis that I can sort of identify or that comes to mind right now is the economic, right? Um, And I think we're all familiar with the 1MDB saga, you know, there have been documentaries out about it, right? Um, But does the economic crisis really begin there? and also what are, what are the ramifications of 1MDB, right? We hear about it as a scandal, we hear about it as a saga, but how has that tangibly affected the lives of Malaysians? How has it tangibly affected the economy? What are the repercussions of that entire debacle?
2: Well, I think 1MDB, well, 1MDB unseated a government who was in power for six, 60 years. So that that's itself, um, sort of is, is a positive development for Malaysians. But in terms of the negative repercussions, of course, you know, globally, um, now people would think that Malaysia is a country whereby um, corruption at the grandest of scales happen, And um, that may affect investor confidence in Malaysia. And actually, it was very important for the new government which took over for Barisan National to show the world that they are able to um, prosecute and they are able to charge a former prime minister for the 1MDB scandal and allow the due process to take its course and to show the world out there that, hey, the, the, the criminal justice system is working in Malaysia, notwithstanding 1MDB. You know, we know that it was a dark, um, the, the dark spot of history that we had to go through, but you know, we are moving on to greener pastures. And at this juncture, no doubt, the 1MDB trial is still ongoing um, because, probably because uh, Muhyiddin Yassin sees Najib Raza and AMNO also as a threat uh, in the future when there are future general elections because they are really just a government where there's a marriage of convenience, so to speak. Um, so, so that is where we are. So, so 1MDB was most pertinent in, in, in that respect. Uh, and, and one in DB, um, also, I think to some extent, um, during Pakatan Harapan's time, uh, triggered uh, a kind of realization in, in the corporate world that you really need to have good corporate governance uh, installed in place in your board of directors, in your management. Uh, so to some extent, those kind of reforms did happen and Pakatan Harapan wanted to do the right thing but you know when prikata national took over i mean that kind of uh they, those uh, efforts seem to have derailed and seemed to have lost focus and people were just you know uh focusing on the political chaos of the day so i'm not really sure whether the the corporate reforms that followed from the 1mdb scandal you know really uh took place after that um but yeah i mean i hope i answered your answer your question but
1: Yes. Now, you've taken us through, I think, the devastating effects and the extent to which the health crisis, right, COVID, is wrecking uh, Malaysia. But can you speak a little bit more on how the democratic crisis is wrecking Malaysia? Um, You spoke earlier about uh, doctors being called up, about critics being silenced. Can you tell us some of the most egregious examples of this silencing that's going on, political abuse of power? Can you speak in some specificity about how the state machinery is being leveraged to silence critics?
2: Right. I think one good example are the um, contract doctors going on strike in Malaysia. But just mm-hmm. to give a, a brief snapshot, um, in Malaysia, since 2016, a lot of our um, medical graduates, when they enter into the medical field in Malaysia and they have to serve in government Hospitals for a certain number of years, um, they were, are given a contract for two to three years and it, it is a at the discretion of the government whether they want to extend it or otherwise. And that is very, very um, damaging to contract doctors because they are paid less, they have less um, benefits, and they do not have security of, in terms of their career. They don't know whether they're going to be a doctor by the end of this year or the end of next year. And they don't have a pathway to become specialists, which I think is the ultimate goal which they want eventually uh, because they're contract doctors. And so many of them are very, very dissatisfied with this situation and they have to risk their lives daily to fight the pandemic. And so all of this um, manifested in the strike that is going on that has gone on this Monday. And uh, I was discussing with some of the organisers before this and you would never believe the level of threats that these doctors are facing whereby they are... Heads of departments are warning them that, you know, you'll be facing disciplinary action. You may be you may be dismissed from your position. You may be struck off the medical council. You'll never be a doctor again. You see police. Uh, in fact, on Monday in Hospital Kuala Lumpur, which is the main hospital based in KL, there were like 20, 30 police cars patrolling the hospital, just to monitor the strike that is going on as if there's an organized crime that is going to take place in in hospital kuala lumpur so this kind of um, culture of clamping dissent of not tolerating any kind of criticism or civil disobedience um, is happening in malaysia and It probably was not caused by Prakatani National because our authorities have that kind of mindset for the longest of times. But, you know, these things continue to happen. Um, So that is one example. And the other example is probably um, uh, back in a few months back, I think, uh, Malaysia Kini, which which is a very popular news portal in Malaysia, was um, charged by the government for contempt of court um, because the, and the allegation was that because in their comment section they allowed third party comments which are disparaging of the judiciary they, and they allowed, because they allowed that to happen they are in contempt of court and contempt of court is a very serious offense which could you know land you in jail and imprisonment and that was uh, that was argued at the federal court the federal court found them to be in contempt of court uh, fortunately the director or the ceo got up with uh, merely a fine and would did not go to jail but i remember the fallout from that decision whereby even the embassies in malaysia i remember the us or the uk embassy uh saw it fit to issue a statement condemning that judgment to hold malaysia kini in contempt um, because they were fearful that even um social media sites like Facebook or Twitter, will they also be in contempt if they allow, you know, comments which are disparaging of the judiciary to appear in their posts or comments? Because this judgment by the federal court to hold military in contempt has sort of opened a Pandora's box where any kind of, you know, uh, website out there which allows third-party comments which may be disparaging of the jud- judiciary to be at risk of being dragged to court for contempt. And that, that was something that was spearheaded by the Attorney General under the Bricata National Government when he came into office. I don't know what kind of message he was trying to send by filing that condemn of court, but it's just another example of how they just want to clamp down on the media uh, uh, to to not criticize the authorities of the government of the day. And then the third example I would give is Fami Reza. So Fami Reza is a very popular cartoonist in Malaysia. So he draws caricatures um, to you know, tease and make fun of of, of opposition of government and opposition politicians, mostly government politicians. And what he has gone to uh, the police station for merely drawing cartoons which mock the government of the day. And um, he's being intimidated and harassed on a daily basis. I think that when the very first few times when he was being arrested, he's the door to his house was being kicked down. Mm-hmm. So you know, you see all this kind of intimidation tactics happening uh, under uh, under this regime. And really, I would think that there is that is the the democratic human rights crisis that we are we are seeing today. And because of the pandemic, also you know, things such as freedom of, of assembly cannot be realized because you know you 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 are we are under lockdown and. And that has very, very negative repercussions, I believe, because an assembly is often the most effective way in which the people show displeasure against the government of the day. Um, There are things that you can achieve through an assembly which you cannot achieve through social media. And being a bursae participant in the past, uh, bursae was a coalition for free and fair elections which had massive protests in Blaise in the past. it really is a very different environment to, to be able to see your fellow Malaysians, to know that you are not alone in this struggle, is just turbocharges your your enthusiasm and and, and, and your 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 drive to, to to go to the next level in terms of in terms of you know fighting for the cause you believe in. And I think that because of this pandemic and the kind of clampdowns that we are seeing happening, I'm just afraid that we are sliding back to where we are. Twenty thirty 30 years back uh, because I was so hopeful when Pakatan Harapan took over in 2018 that you would see you know, Malaysia finally breaking its chains of the past, so to speak, to a more democratic and free society. But this is so unfortunate that you know, Sheraton had to happen and all this had to happen and here we are today. Uh, I would never have imagined that when I voted when I spent hours voting in 2018, that this is where Malaysia will be two years down the road.
1: So um, I think you've done an amazing job of uh, explicating to us the health crisis, the economic crisis, the democratic crisis and the political crisis. And yeah, you know, I think we have a pretty good picture now of the very, very horrendous and horrific situation that is going on just just a you know just a few kilometers away from us right very very nearby those of us who are in singapore um how then do you think that this situation will continue to develop in the coming weeks and months um do you see a way out are you hopeful how do you think this crisis will progress
2: um the to be honest i'm not very hopeful that this government will be forced to resign or be unseated, um, mainly because I think that there is no uh, clear alternative to Muhyiddin Yassin, the prime minister. Um, And uh, until the COVID numbers come under control, it doesn't seem to be the case that a general election would come in the near future soon. Uh, The only saving grace for Malaysia is our a uh, relatively rapid vaccination rate, uh, vaccination drive, of late. Um, so I think that by August, or, by August or September, I think the government aims to have you know every adult in the Klang Valley vaccinated or at least have one dose. And I think that they are reaching their target, and those numbers are seem to be you know reaching. And so the vaccination is the only thing that will probably bring us out of this health crisis that we are facing today um, mm-hmm. but beyond that when it comes to the political crisis um, unfortunately I, I really don't see any silver lining um, mm-hmm. not unless you know AMNO or Barisan National within Brikatan National decides to work, to join forces with Anwar and Pakatan Harapan um, that is a possibility uh, we, we, we never know uh, what will happen um, but at this juncture that doesn't seem to be very likely and mm-hmm. um, so we, from what I can observe, we would probably, our, what will probably happen is that the vaccination rates will be up, the number of deaths will be hopefully a little bit lower, and when the COVID numbers are under control in, I don't know, 2022 or 2023, then a general election will happen and Malaysians will be able to choose who to lead them again, that mm-hmm. is a likely scenario. Mm-hmm.
0: Gosh, I mean, uh, but on Monday, right, we're recording this on Tuesday, 27 July. So yesterday, uh, the government abruptly declared that the emergency was over. So surely parliament has to sit again and surely now there have to be votes on bills which the government can be defeated on. And surely at some point, uh, they have to do a supply bill, a budget. And if the government loses that, you know, then um, that's... I mean, by convention in Westminster Parliament, that's seen as a motion of confidence. So you don't see any hope that there, there will be a vote in Parliament which clearly demonstrates that Muhyiddin doesn't have the confidence of Parliament.
2: Right. So uh, the thing is that, yes, I think just to correct a little bit, uh, the ordinances under the emergency are said to have been annulled uh, by the Minister of Law. Not the proclamation of emergency. So the proclamation uh, allows ordinances to be enacted. Uh, so there is a there is some kind of legal distinction there. But uh, to, to but the point remains that um, the government of the day seems to have given the signal that the ordinances which you know suspends parliament will no longer be enforced. Um, so in light of that, uh, what Muhyiddin can probably do is to. Uh, because the thing with Malaysia and similar to Singapore, I believe, is that the government of the day has full liberty to fix the schedule of parliament. So he could very well, you know, not fix um, a lot of dates for bills and debates to take place. And that's what he did in the past. You know, he only had one session to comply with the constitutional requirement that parliament must sit every six months. And he just, you know, left and uh, he just did not summon parliament after that. So that's how they they play around the rules to their to their advantage. But you are right that you, there will come a point eventually by the end of the year where they have to pass um, the budget because, you know, without the budget, you can't really function for the following year. Um, if you look at the trend in the past, um, Mu Yidin actually managed to pass the budget, uh, I think for for last for last year, I believe. Um, so he, he it's because he did not have an outright majority, but the opposition also could not amass a, a a a a number to defeat the bill. So the bill was eventually passed. So what I'm what I suppose what I'm trying to say is that yeah, Muidin is fearful, but when push comes to shove, he may just have one or two more MPs. Um, over and above the opposition he may just be able to pass the, the the budget or whatever bills that he wants by the skin of his teeth um, so he will still remain in power uh, I think um, I, I hope that answers your, your query
0: yeah yeah thank you right but what role does the head of state have the South, The Agong sorry in this can what can the Agong do uh and do they? Does he have any sort of ability to force any kind of change? Could he, for example, does he have the right to dismiss the prime minister and try and find a
2: new one, or or can the, only the prime minister do that? Right. Um, so uh, under Malaysian law, uh, the king actually has the power to, you know, request a sitting prime minister to resign and to appoint a new prime minister. Uh, That legal precedent happened because of the Perak case that happened in 2008, where uh, the Pakatan uh, Rakyat Coalition then was unseated by Barisan National in the state of Perak. And the federal court held that, you know, the Sultan can actually, you know, ask a sitting chief minister to resign and appoint a new chief minister. I I don't believe that that is the correct way in which you um, appoint or select a a new prime minister. I do think that you eventually need to go back to parliament and parliament needs to very transparently put the matter to a vote to decide whether this prime minister has lost confidence because you don't want the king to have this um, unchecked power to say that oh, person A has lost the majority without actually having the evidence that that person has lost the majority. So you don't want to hand that kind of arbitrary power to the monarch. But that being said, the status quo is that that seems to be the case that the king can do that. But will the king do that is another matter altogether. I think that for, um, from the past statements issued by the palace, the king seems to still have confidence in the government of the day um, so unless ANOA or any other MP out there is able to very clearly show that they have the majority to take over from median, the king, in my view, is likely to maintain status quo. Uh, so, so that's where we are today.
0: Right. Thanks. Uh, so, just to clarify, that that right um, can Parliament reject. Uh, because in a Westminster system, we accept the supremacy of Parliament. Could, if the King decides to dismiss the Prime Minister, uh, theoretically, can the Parliament then vote to to stop that, or uh, you know, or have no confidence in whoever the King appoints or invites, and vote to you know, bring back the old Prime Minister, or could the Prime Minister then simply? Have a a no confidence motion in the king, or are there any sort of constitutional checks and balances against that king's power?
2: Right. Uh, So, in the event the king chooses a prime minister whom parliament thinks does not command the majority, I think what parliament theoretically can do is to, you know, hold a motion of no confidence against that particular prime minister and to see whether that succeeds or otherwise. And that leads to where the problem, the other problem that we have today with our Parliament. We have a Speaker of Parliament who is, um, for want of a better word, uh, just completely beholden to the Prime Minister of the day. And there were countless motions of no confidence that the opposition MPs were trying to table, but the Speaker was just not allowing that to be on the agenda of the day. So that has happened for for since last year. And even today, you know, we see on mon- Monday where this law minister said that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the ordinances of emergency have been annulled. you know, and that seems to be a, a shocking development because no one knew that beforehand. It just blurted out in parliament. And today, when um, opposition MPs are demanding the Minister of Law whether those um, that decision to annul had been gazetted or had received the consent of the king, he was being evasive, and he said that I will answer on Monday, next Monday. And the speaker just allowed him to do that, and you know, the speaker did not compel the minister to answer. He was clearly protecting the government of the day, and allowing these kind of ministers to, to get off um, on a very, very uh, important constitutional and legal uh, issue that required an urgent answer there and then. So the the other crisis which I forgot to mention earlier is really the Speaker of Parliament not standing up to defend the role of Parliament as a check and balance against the Executive and is just more than willing to play the Executive's game and to serve their agenda and cause and not Parliament's cause as a uh, arm of government that checks upon that
1: executive. Okay. Really, what then is the responsibility of Singaporeans here in this crisis, right? You know, as a country that has, you know, for the most part, I think, dealt with the, the pandemic decently well, that is not in a humanitarian crisis, that is really a neighbour to Malaysia. What is the role or responsibility that you think Singaporeans or the Singapore government has?
2: Well, well, hopefully not
1: or pity, uh, but mm-hmm.
2: probably to... I think the message that probably I hope Singaporeans can, can send to, to, to Malaysians is that, you know, um, to, to just hang in there and that uh, the better days will come eventually. Mm-hmm. And um, this is the, that the failures that you're seeing in the system Um, is not entirely your fault but you know we have a government of the day which came into power through unscrupulous means and we are stuck in this situation and um, to, to just give us that kind of moral support I believe I think that a lot of Malaysians are very disheartened and disillusioned of this country and I think for the very first times in my life I've heard of friends wanting to you know, move overseas and because they really don't see a future in Malaysia even if this pandemic comes under control because of the rock in the economy in terms of governance and democracy. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, I still do think that there is hope for Malaysia and, 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 and I think that, you know, the message to to just hang in there and, and stay on and will we'll hopefully help Malaysians over here.
0: Are there NGOs you mentioned for the white flag crisis that Singaporeans could donate to or offer support to?
2: Um, I, I, I apologise but I can't remember the exact name of the
0: NGOs. Oh, it's okay. We can research it later and then we'll put it in the show notes. So anyone listening or watching, if you look below in the show notes, uh, you'll be able to see a link. Uh, if, if I can offer a, a different sort of uh, perspective though, you know What we're seeing is a country, um, a rich, prosperous country, which has a parliament which is not fulfilling its constitutional duty to uh, scrutinise the executive or act as a check and balance. We have misallocation of state funds for, to prioritise party purposes, rather than national purposes. Uh, we've got the use of lawsuits against critics, uh, the use of um, the, the law to harass, to intimidate, the you know people who criticize the government or activists or the media, right? We have the, a lack of basic freedoms, um, such as uh, a lack of the the freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of speech, right? All these things also describe Singapore, and uh, they described Malaysia, I think, 20, 30 years ago. But the difference then was you had. And Singapore also had an authoritarian leader who was also very competent. But when you end up with a government that is incompetent, then everything falls apart very quickly. And all these tools which the authoritarian competent leader used to boost growth in the economy and you know raise living standards for everyone suddenly become tools for the incompetent government to abuse power. So I think the main lesson for Singapore is actually, uh, you know, to not not pity, but to look at Malaysia and realize that if we don't democratize and have proper transparency and accountability and, and, and checks and balances, you know, it's very easy to go from being uh, a decently run, prosperous country to a, a poor a poor one in the middle of, of a quadruple crisis just like that, right? And in this day and age, I think we recognise there's going to be more crises, there's going to be, there may be another pandemic, but we also have the slow-moving uh, climate crisis that's happening, and all these things are going to uh, require good, competent leadership, and there's no guarantee of that. So we've got to have democratic protections and checks and balances.
2: Right, I, I totally agree with you. I think that if there's any one lesson that Singapore can take from Malaysia's crisis today is to, like you said, you know, reform the institutions out there to have independent Inspector General Police, independent Attorney General, independent judiciary, a relatively independent Parliament to all provide scrutiny and checks and balances upon upon the executive of the day, and I think that that is so supremely uh, important. Uh, because only when the executive is in check will it produce competent results at the end of the day, and I think that that's something that you know it, it is a, a huge lesson. And I think that Malaysians themselves will realize this, uh, I'm not very sure that that will happen.
1: So, uh, which I just have one last question for you right here, uh, and that is. If there was one thing right now that you could change, right, one political move, uh, one move that activists uh, can make or have made that has really worked, that has really begun to change things, what would that be? Uh, Something that has already taken place. I either already taken place um, and that has worked very well or something that you would like to see uh, happen from activists, lawyers like yourself and other people engaged in this uh, fight against this, you know, very tyrannical government.
2: Um, yeah, I think one of the very, very um, important achievements that uh, activists managed to do uh, is to lower the voting age from 21 to 18 years old. And I think that some, there's something Singapore has not managed to be able to do. Thus.
1: I'm, caught, I'm caught a little bit left field. I'm I'm caught a little bit off guard by that because, you know, the problems that we're talking about are quite far away from this. So, yeah, I'm very interested. Yeah, the voting age.
2: Right. Um, I think mm. that the voting age, lowering the voting age really is an important milestone. Um, and, I, and also represents my hope for the younger people out there in Malaysia uh, because I do think that it is the younger generation that will take Malaysia out of the the crisis that we are seeing today Uh, because I do feel that one of the other causes of this crisis are old male politicians dominating the political sphere in Malaysia and not allowing the young people to take over. If you look at cabinet today, no one is uh, below 40. If you look Mm. at parliament today, there are only two MPs which are lower than 30 years old. And these MPs, people like Syed Sadiq, they bring energy, they bring creativity in what they are doing, in how they serve the people. And I think that they represent the hope that Malaysia, uh, the hope that, you know, Malaysians can hopefully achieve one day. And I do think that lowering the voting age allows more younger people to take part in the democratic process. And inevitably allows younger ideals and young and the aspirations of the younger people to be better reflected in policies mm. of the day, which hopefully translates to young people coming into power. Um, and, and I do think that that is the the way forward, and also for, of course, also having more female politicians to be installed in power. and And I think that lowering the voting age from twenty one to eighteen will change. The course of the game in Malaysia for the next few decades, because we are looking at a whole different demographic altogether. Three million plus people will enter into the voting role. We don't know how they will vote. We don't know who, what kind of policies and ideals that they aspire for. And so it really is really interesting to see how political parties are able to tap into it. But regardless, I, I do think that that is probably something that, you know, will, will will bring Malaysia, you know, into somewhere better off, hopefully, in the next few decades.
1: I have to say, I didn't expect that answer, but I am so <laughs> 100%. So, thank you.
0: More diversity, more representation. Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, thank you so much for your time, Weijad. We really appreciate it. And I know I speak for all mm-hmm. Singaporeans when, when I say that we hope Malaysia will find its way out of this crisis. You know we are. Uh, I mean, Singapore and Malaysia have had a lot of differences over the years, but ultimately we are intertwined and interdependent. And I know that uh, a, a well-run democratic Malaysia can only be good for Singapore and vice versa. And I really hope that uh, you know we'll find we'll find a way to, to um, emerge from this crisis. So thank you very much for your time, Bridget. Uh Thank you very much for you know all your. Yeah, really insightful and, and, and an excellent explanation of what's going on. And of course, as always, thank you to my co-host, Sean Francis. Thanks, always, uh, Sean, for, for excellent questions and being here. And thank you uh, to our listeners and all of you watching on YouTube um, for joining in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do join New Narrative as a member. We need your support at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much and see you next time.